In the conclusion of Oscar's conversation with Coach Joby Hall, we learn more about not only Joby Hall as a coach, but as a person as well. Oscar picks up with Coach going into his final two seasons at Kentucky, and Coach Hall will then tell us about the events that led up to his resignation and how his coaching career came full circle. Oscar and Joe B cuts loose a little bit, and this is fun. You get to hear Coach Hall's comments on some of the great coaching legends in the SEC and in college basketball. And then Coach tries to explain the psychology of one Bobby Knight. There's so much more on the way, and we'll get to Oscar and Coach Hall in a minute, but if you've not had the chance to listen to the previous episodes of Conversations with Oscar Combs featuring Joe B. Hall, I strongly encourage you to download parts one, two, and three. You can find those at oscarcombs.com. Conversations with Oscar Combs is also available for download on iTunes and the Google Play Store. Just search at Wildcat News and subscribe. I'm Bo Robinson, and for now, enjoy the conclusion of Conversations with Oscar Combs and Coach Joby Hall, and I think you will find out what truly makes Coach Hall unique to the storied history of Kentucky basketball and a treasure to the state of Kentucky. Now, having set out those two years, that enabled you to have Bowie for that 84 team, which was really, really special. Yeah. They came out and got the win over Louisville. One of my favorite all-time games at Rupp Arena, maybe the best, was Super Bowl Sunday in 84. Five slamming jamma, Houston, came up. And that was the first day that CBS had ever had a – basketball game as a lead into the Super Bowl. And I remember a friend of mine coming in for the game and he just came from the airport and flown in. He said, you ought to go out there and look at Bluegrass Field right now. I said, what do you mean? He said, there's over a hundred private planes out there. Really? He said, yeah. He said, it's all these rich oil people from Texas up here to see the game today. And that arena, they, I don't think they've ever had that many people. The signage was just amazing. It seemed like every student in there had made a, some kind of sign, and they were wild, just absolutely. Was there ever a game at Rupp that you remember where you had as many talented players on the floor as those two teams oh, combined? Gosh, no. No, I remember Elijah Wine and Bowie and Turpin under that basket. So you, you, you go out through that season, and you get to the tournament, and uh, – you're playing really good basketball. You got Brigham Young first. Then you come back home again, and you got back-to-back games with Louisville and Illinois. Before I gotta, I'm, I'm jumping around here a little bit, but you got to go back that year because there was a special game on Christmas Eve in, in Champaign, Illinois. Yeah, and, uh, and we beat them on their home floor. And then when we beat them on our floor, the coach complained – because we had the NCAA. And they changed the rule after that. Yeah, that you couldn't play on your own yeah. floor. But now, going back to Champagne, is it really true that that was the best officiating game you ever coached yes, in? And, yes, indeed. They brought two guys out of the stands to referee. One of them had blue jeans on. But it was the first time a referee ever came to the locker room to get my autograph after a game. Tell us a little bit about the trip home. If I remember correctly, Dr. Singletary made that trip with you. You flew up there, but you couldn't fly out coming back. We were supposed to fly out, but the weather changed. We almost didn't have the game. 
the crowd couldn't get there. there it was so cold that uh, the plane was froze up. They couldn't even get it started. So what they did, they were going to send for a generator or something that would kick the power up to get it started. And the plane flying the generator couldn't get in. So we were stuck about four and a half minutes with no way to get out of Champaign on Christmas Eve. And the bus companies were all booked up except this one guy who owned his own bus. And he said, yeah, well, I'll take you back. So we chartered this lone bus, and the driver, the owner himself, drove us. I think his son came with him. And we all piled on that bus, and it was a diesel. And it must have been 20 below zero. And we'd go up a hill, and that diesel fluid would gel, and we'd do about 10 miles an hour for about two miles on the climb. Then we'd top the hill, and we'd get up full speed. Next hill, we'd slow down to about 10. And Leonard Hamilton and I stood up front and wiped the windshield for the driver <laughs> all the way back because the defroster would heat up enough to to clear the windshield off. And you had the president on that trip with and you. Dr. Singletary. We got back about 7 in the morning. Christmas. On Christmas Day. That year you you beat Louisville in a very close game at Rupp. Uh, I think their press may have been a little bit more effective than it was earlier. And then, like you said, you played Lou Henson and Illinois again. Uh, two really good games. Sent you to the Final Four with Houston – who we'd already beaten. Already beaten. You end up playing the Georgetown game, and everything seems to be going good, but the ball just wouldn't fall the second half. Well, we got out to a nine-point lead in the first half. They cut it to seven by halftime. And I was really concerned but saw because I saw a change in them the last two or three minutes of the first half. They really came out and got physical. One player in particular, Graham. Graham. And, uh, I mean, he was physically intimidating people. And I remember Melvin coming to the bench and saying, Coach, he hit me. I said, Melvin, hit him back. <laughs> Don't take that off of me. And he did. He just absolutely changed the game, I thought. He would grab players and throw them out of the way to get the rebound. Referees wouldn't call it. But uh, at halftime, we had a cameraman in the locker room filming our halftime. So everybody wanted to know what I did to turn them off. And all they had to do was see the film. It was normal. Uh, we had a podcast with Kenny Walker here a couple weeks ago. And he said everything was normal in the locker room. Yeah. You know, everything was upbeat. Just go play, play yeah. what got you here. And he said it was just one of those freak things that just. Just absolutely unimaginable, unexplainable. The, uh, the way those shots wouldn't fall. There was, one, almost, there, like was, there was one shot 
Yes. There was one shot by James Blackman about, about 10 minutes ago on the high where he got the ball at midcourt with a layup, and there was nobody within 15 no. feet of it. And he just laid it right over top. Nothing couldn't Well, Boy and Turpin played badminton or volleyball. It went over the basket two or three times. Next year, which turns out to be your last year, you got a very young team. You got a stud player in Kenny Walker that basically I think you end up saying, Kenny, you got to be guard forward and center. Yeah, we really went to Kenny. Who else we had? We had uh, Roger Harden. Winston Bennett. Winston Bennett. You, you, you go through that season uh, with all that youth and everything. You have a tough stretch there at the beginning of the season. Called again, you're still playing those Kansas, Louisville, Notre Dame, Indiana. You get in the SEC tournament, you lose a game down there, and most people think in the line you're not going to the tournament. Yeah. And Kenny tells us a story, and he wouldn't name which player, but said that some of the players were so sure you wasn't going to tournament that two of them took off for Florida on vacation. <laughs> and when you got the notification you was going to the tournament, they had to run them back. You go in and you play two really, really good teams. You're a 10-point underdog in both of these games. Washington first. They had a kid named of Detlef Shrimp, I think. They had won their conference. And they were a very sound team and uh, were rated over us. I don't know how many points, but we played soup. And then you come back, UNLV. UNLV. And they were supposed to beat us. And they were conference champs of their league. And then you play St. John's, and Kenny gets his eye poked early in the first half when you were really playing them well. Yeah, we were in the game and playing well. And they had a super team. They they were loaded. Chris Mullins, Bill Whittington. Chris Mullins. I thought in the Olympics, he was one of the best yeah. players in the Olympics that year. And then they had uh, the big kid. And we played them well. And uh, I think we just absolutely ran out of gas. It took such an effort to uh, stay with them that first half and be competitive. I think we just ran down. After the game, you announced that you were going to step down. I'd already talked to Doc Singletary. I had a five years on my contract. He didn't want me to leave. And I felt like I had done for the program about all I could do. And uh, maybe somebody could come in and kick it up another night. And they did. The the morning of that last game, the Rumors started circling around in a hotel that whenever the last game was that season, you were going to hang it up. But earlier in the week, uh, Dick Connor, O'Connor. Yeah, from Denver. From Denver, longtime Dick friend Connor. of yours, wrote a, a, a column, and he followed you out to Regis when you took the family out there during one of the off days. Was that sort of – We were – we practiced yes. at Regis. That was uh, nostalgic. Because that's where I started. Yes. I know the morning of the game, you took the family back out there. Yeah. Because everybody was looking for it. And the guy said, D. Huddleston told me, well, Coach, just spend some time with the family. And I guess that's what it was, where it all started. I guess, yeah. Just a couple little things here. Um, best player you ever coached against? Bernard King had the best game of any superstar that I ever coached against. He scored laying on his back one time. And uh, 
he was just a super player and proved it in the pros. If he could have kept him on the right track, he would have been a great one. But uh, Magic Johnson, of course, uh, he was a terrific player. Jordan, when we played them, Jordan was a freshman. They had a team loaded. Wasn't and, that up in the Meadowlands? Yeah, that was in the Meadowlands. And they had a team that was loaded with talent. We played them tough, but Jordan came down and hit about five jump shots in a row. <laughs> I remember one play made. He went up in the air, spun, did a three-six in the air, and then threw the ball behind his back to a guy cutting to the bats. And I and we had really uh, scouted uh, Perkins and, and Worthy and Cupcheck. We felt they were the players we had stopped, the big men inside. But Jordan just... He just wore us out with his great play. Best team you ever coached against? The Michigan State team was a great team. The Indiana team probably was the best team that we played against. Just give me a description, memory of some of the coaches that were really big time in the SEC when you were coaching. We had Ray the, Mears. Yeah, <laughs> we had great coaches. Ray Mears was strange, but he was a great coach. He recruited well, and he was very disciplined in his play, and uh, he got the most out of his players. Roy Skinner. Roy Skinner was an outstanding coach. He was very personable, a likable guy, kept it on the, in the right terms, and uh, was always competitive. Uh, very likable guy. You would like to. Sit down and visit with him. Hugh Durham. Hugh was uh, one of my best friends in the coaching world. Being from uh, Louisville, playing high school ball there. And Hugh was a very sensible, down-to-earth guy that uh, always had uh, good suggestions in the meeting. He was a gracious winner and took losing in the right vein. Sonny Smith. Sonny was one of the most... Easy going, likable guys, make a joke out of anything. A good recruiter, a good coach. Uh, not one of the old veteran guys, but a very good coach. Wimp Sanderson. Wimp was uh, followed CM. And uh, Wimp was a hard worker, but a real worrier. And uh, he would get so far down. They bring everybody down with him. But uh, he enhanced the program after he took over after CM and made them very competitive. And CM? CM was a super guy. Just one of the most likable coaches in the league, one of the most respected, a guy that could get his team up ready to play and always give you a battle. And uh, and remain your friend, and CM was that kind of guy. Bob Welling at Ole Miss. Bob Welling was kind of a warrior, and crier, and uh, things that I remember about it was he always had complaints when he lost. Jim Hatfield. Jim Hatfield was at Mississippi State. Yeah, Jim was a great guy, and uh, a good recruiter. He could uh, evaluate talent 
and he could recruit and get close to the family and did a great job here at Kentucky. Dale Brown. Dale Brown was one of the most interesting, hardworking coaches that I ever knew. He was interesting in that he tried to live sensationally. He had a bucket list of things that he wanted to do. Uh, and he worked hard at accomplishing those must, which included mountain climbing, boat racing, uh, anything you could think of. Norm Sloan. Norm, Norm Sloan was my compadre. We stuck together on most legislation. We agreed on most things that were brought up within the conference, and uh, he and I got along real well. I thought a lot of Norm. I got to come back to Dale Brown just one minute, but what was it he tried to recruit you in after you had retired and he had retired? Something over in Asia or something. Didn't he try to recruit you to come over there to do something? Yeah, I can't remember. Was it coaching a team or something? No, it was uh, It was some something venture. else. Yeah, I can't uh, He was always – into something. He he had an imagination that ran wild. And, of course, it didn't stop with his coaching. He liked to name his defenses and be sensational in his preparation. He tried to do things that would unnerve you, get you upset. And uh, he played all the angles. Dean Smith. Dean uh, – was uh, a little bit off to himself, not uh, a good mixer. I traveled Europe with him doing clinics, and I don't think we ever had a meal together. And uh, that was his way of being aloof, and uh, he certainly was that. Al McGuire. Al McGuire was one of the best I ever knew. Uh, one of the, he had the best philosophy of life. And lived it to the degree. He uh, never took life seriously and uh, just had a great attitude about his preparation. He liked to uh, play mind games with you. And, really played him with Coach Rupp, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, oh, he'd drive Coach Rupp badly. But I really liked Al. We, we got along great. Of course, we made that record together. Yes. And uh, On the we, road again? Yeah. And uh, I followed him, Frank McGuire and I, the year after Al had done the our service clinic over Europe, in England, Germany. Uh, Frank and I followed him, and we got into some place. I think it was Stuttgart, Germany, or someplace. And the guy said, "Well, here's your itinerary for a week. How do you all want to handle it?" And I, and Frank looked at. Him. He said. I'll take morning the first day, you take afternoon, you take morning. And we laid out how we were going to divide up the clinic. And this, this special service officer looked at us and says, you really going to do it? We said, yeah, that's what we came over here for. He said, well, Al came in last year, and we threw the itinerary down. He looked at it and said, I'll do the Monday morning. 
in the Friday afternoon and said, I want a motorcycle, and I'll see you all Monday and Friday. And he took off. They didn't see him for a week. Digger Phelps in Notre Dame. Digger, uh, I don't even want to make a comment. <laughs> Since you're in that mood, I'll ask you about Bob Knight. Bob Knight is really hard to understand. I, I would have to be educated in psychology to figure him out because uh, he could be as nice a guy as you'd ever want to be around. One-on-one, and we've been in a lot of situations, one-on-one, uh, out in the stream wading, fishing out of a lake, doing clinics together, uh, coaching in the Olympic trials together. When we were in Colorado Springs for two weeks, he and I must have gone to dinner 10 times in those two weeks and to a movie and shared popcorn like Denny Crum and I. And then after the the uh, two weeks at the Air Force Academy coaching in the Olympic trials, we went to Pete Widener's ranch up in Wyoming, stayed in his guest house and fished uh, the streams up there and had a great time. Came back to Denver, spent a couple of days in Denver, and then uh, split up. We never had a crossword. We never had a problem. He was as good a guy to be around as you want. But you had two more people, and he went into his act, and he was a, a bully, a put you down, arrogancy that was almost uh, forced to keep that part of it in your mind, not let him have leave you feeling a nice guy. Judd Heathcote, Michigan State. Judd Heathcote's one of the funniest guys that ever coached. Took it seriously, but didn't let it bug him. Didn't let him get into relationships. He was uh, really a nice guy. Raleigh Massimino. Wally, I didn't know too well and never spent a lot of time with him but had no problems playing these teams. Seems like every player has certain teams he plays well against. Coaches have certain teams they play well against. Uh, for you, you own Kansas. 12-1 and one all time. That's hard to Alan explain. Alan Fieldhouse, you are 5-1. and one. That's hard to explain, Oscar. Uh, I think it had more to do with Coach Rupp than did me. I think uh, Coach Rupp, having been from Kansas, played for Fog Island at Kansas. When we went back to play, when he was coach, I've gone with Coach to visit Fog Island. And to see those two together painted a different picture of Coach Rupp. He was almost like the pupil at the knee of the master when he said visited with Falcon. He had such respect for him that it was unbelievable. And uh, I think my experiences as, as an assistant and coach up in the canvas scene gave me a, a feeling of how important that game was. Is that, what, 
other than Freedom Hall, which all Kentucky coaches have loved, and, of course, Memorial and alumni and Rupp here, what arena did you enjoy playing in the best? Well, Freedom Hall, as you mentioned, is the number one place. And uh, that gym just suited basketball. It framed the floor with the lighting and the rims and the atmosphere and that was just conducive to good concentration. And I think Kansas, the excitement of the crowd, you had the feeling that no matter what the rankings of the two teams were, this was an important game. And uh, the crowd was one of the best supportive crowd, but also um, not abusive to the opponents. And they were, you you felt good playing in a place was that excited. I'm sure that there are other places like that. That was one of the best. I'm going to ask you one I know you don't want to talk about, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Best ref you ever coached? Under. Best what? Best referee. Oh, gosh. I know there's a short list there somewhere. Well, there were referees that when I brought my team on the floor and saw who they were, I felt good. And there were referees I felt bad. Well, name me one that you felt bad about. Uh, Rutledge. No, not Rutledge. Uh, what's his name? The one that called the technical on me, Vandy, when the Van Breedekoff dribbled the ball out of bounds oh. right in front of our basket. Wasn't Don Che, was it? No, Don Che. Well, it's nice that you can't remember that name. Yeah, but I can remember a lot of good ones. And uh, I'd say most of them meant well, but there were some that would develop a chip on their shoulder quick. Rutledge was one of the good ones. What, what do you think about the state of the program today and John Calipari? I think John Calipari is the best individual for this job I've ever seen. I think he was born to coach at Kentucky. He's added so much to the uh, promotion of the program and the players, and he has adjusted to the NCAA rule, I mean NBA rule of one and done. He's taken it and whipped it and kept us in the top four or five in the nation every year. He, it, no one knows what a tough job it is to take four freshmen and a sophomore and playing the best teams in the country. That's a big job, and he does it about as effortlessly as anybody I've ever seen. Just a one-line comment or two on the people who follow you. We'll just go backwards on this. Billy Clyde Gillespie. Billy Clyde was a very likable person. I hated to see him having the troubles he had. I think he could have been corrected. I talked to Billy before they released him and told him, I said, Billy, go to him and tell him you want change. You want to go to rehab. You want to take advice from those people that love the program. And I said, do that, and you might have a chance. But he didn't. But he was a very likable uh, guy. I like Billy Clyde. Tubby Smith. Tubby was the best uh, human being 
in person to be a coach. He is uh, so honest that it's written all over him. You can believe what he says. He's going to do the right thing for the program and for his players and every, every move he makes. Very conscientious. Rick Patino. Rick is, uh, is a leader. He's uh, relentless in his pursuit of excellence. He's as hard a worker in practice as I've ever seen. He's uh, attention to detail in every phase of the game. He's a teacher, and his teams reflect good coaching. He's uh, his personality. He's not as behind the scenes as friendly as the others. Eddie Sutton. Eddie was uh, a top drawer coach, one of the tops in the nation. Played under Hank Iba, reflected his coaching. Eddie was a guy that was a friend of everybody. Uh, I've noticed things in Hank Iba that I noticed in Eddie. Hank Iba was a friend to the lady that sold the cigarettes in the lobby of a hotel or chewing gum or the little shop. He was as friendly to the bellboys or the doormen as he was to the president of the university. And Eddie was that way. Eddie was uh, really a, a nice guy to everybody. And he could coach. This is a little bit late asking you this because you've now been retired 30 years. But over the years you look back, what do you miss most about coaching? I think the, uh, the pressure of dealing in a, a program or a job that was meant so much to people and you were judged so uh, closely, it kept you on your toes. Everything you did was competitive, recruiting, disciplining your kids, preparing them, the response that you got in a positive way encouraged you, made you feel like you were doing your job and the association with the players and and knowing that you had a role in molding their future. And I think uh, one of the greatest satisfactions that I get today is looking at the kids I coach and what they're doing now and what good citizens they are what uh, good fathers they are, and family men. I I just feel good about all the kids that I've been in association with. How would you describe your relationship with Denny Crum from the get-go in the early 70s to today? Well, the first time I met Denny, he was doing a clinic for the high school association here on UK campus. And he had parked his car, and he was walking around like he didn't know where he was going. And I saw him, and I knew he was on the, on the program. So I went out and got him and uh, told him where he to go and went with him. And he appreciated that. It got us off to a good start. And uh, for me to be friendly with him, and he was a little uneasy about being by himself and on UK, I mean, not afraid, but uncomfortable. Yeah. 
and I made him comfortable. And uh, we were always good friends from that day forward. When we'd meet at a NCAA meeting or on a recruiting trip, we'd talk about the last fishing trip we had. Your radio show and since? The radio show was the greatest adventure I had outside of coaching. I loved working for Central Bank and being able to travel all over the state and deal with uh, bank personnel that were just great people. And uh, the Kentucky fans that I got to visit with all over the state. And that was great. But the radio gave me a sit-down opportunity to visit with the fans and friends and coaches, referees, broadcasters. We had the the end to call and invite people to be on their show that extended our uh, contacts and rapport. And uh, that was just a great 10 years, 10 years and eight months of staying in too with all sports. I mean, uh, we did fishing, hunting, golf. We had contests in golf. We uh, featured the young girl that caught the big muskie cave run. We uh, had the kid that got in a mob fight with a truck driver up in Iowa. <laughs> Just things that gave us an opportunity to visit with Samantha Kinchin the girl boxer here from Henry Clay and the the uh, fencer that was in the Olympics. The opportunity to feature these people, give them publicity and be a part of their success. As you said earlier, Adolph Rupp was a baron of the Bluegrass, the father of the program for 42 years. But really and truly, when you took over in 72, is when the program really branched out into the far reaches of Kentucky, partly due to the time you didn't have TV pre-60s. You didn't have the play. If you saw Kentucky players, you had to come to the Coliseum or you had to come to Alumni Gym. You did something nobody had done before, and I want to get the reasoning and what caused you to develop the – desire to take the players to the fans rather than the fans coming to the players, starting with your three preseason scrimmages that usually you'd try to strategically put one in eastern Kentucky and one in western Kentucky and a third one around. What what led you to that? Well, the uh, what I faced when I came to Kentucky was that Coach Rupp was the center of the program, and he was the the feature attraction. Well, I could never be that unless I stayed 42 years and won four championships. But I could let the fans feel in touch with the players. And uh, I think the fans like that side of it. I couldn't get into their mind that quick. And uh, I did a lot of innovative things that people don't know about. The running, weightlifting, and conditioning program I put in was new to the whole basketball world. 
weightlifting was needed. People didn't believe it. Athletes lifting weights, basketball players. They thought that was for grunt athletes, football players, a wrestler. I proved that uh, everybody could play better. If I were a ping pong coach, I'd have the ping pong players lifting weights. And uh, then I did the Midnight Madness. I brought that to Kentucky. I did the Halloween, turned the dorm into a haunted house. And, and you and you also uh, went out and privately raised the money to build Wildcat Lodge. Yeah, Bill Wildcat Lodge. We had Christmas cards made of the players with Santa Claus. We had uh, the scrimmages out in the state that were new, and we were moving from Memorial Coliseum and doubling our seating capacity. So it was my feeling that if we could get out in two hours from Lexington and create more fans, it would help sell those tickets. When you finally decided to get out of coaching, leave Kentucky, were you ever tempted or did anybody ever come after you and say, hey, coach, we'd like you to coach again, come out of retirement? Yeah, I had several of them. Talk about that. Well, I put the word out that I wouldn't. I mean, that's what every college heard, that I was retiring from coaching. And uh, Southern Cal, I did listen to them, and uh, but I told them, before I met with AD, that I would not, I was not looking for a job. He said, well, just let us talk to you. South Florida flew me down for a visit. I didn't want to go, but they begged me to come look at the program. Two or three others contacted me and uh, just put out feelers that I just immediately told I wasn't in. What is it about either Kentucky or the citizens, the fans, that makes it special, or is it special because you're a Kentuckian yourself? You you answered it right there. Being a Kentuckian and growing up here, you know what it does for a player. I mean, it means everything for a Kentucky kid to have Kentucky across each head and run out on that floor with on on UFK. It still makes her stand up on the back of my, my neck. And uh, I think that I felt more a responsibility than any non-Kentuckian would have, either a player or a coach, because I knew what it meant to so many people. Is there anything you would do different again in your career, not your personal life, but your career? if you had it to do over? I'm sure there are some mistakes I made that I recognize that were probably not in the right direction. But I I think that overall, I had the program so much at the top that uh, I did a lot of things that were self-sacrifices to benefit the program. Uh, There were a lot of things that I maybe could have done to promoted myself more. I didn't care to get a lot of recognition nor national publicity or or any of those things meant nothing to me. I was where I wanted to be, and I was lucky to get here. 
And I'm always thankful of Coltrip bringing me back and giving me the opportunity that he gave me. And uh, I was very fortunate to be a kid growing up wearing blue jeans and going barefoot 25, 30 miles north of here and loving the program like I did. Being a student, former player, a degree from here, and having the opportunity to come back and coach. No other young man has ever achieved that. And I was just in the right place at the right time. And I worked hard. I don't think anybody ever outworked me at anything I ever did in my life. And uh, you pile on dedication and you pile on uh, not caring about personal work, but doing the best job that you can for your responsibility. And that's satisfying. And that's what I did. I, I wouldn't change it for anything. To have worked where I wanted to work never became work. It just was a pleasure every day I went in the office or on that floor. I don't miss it now because I moved on and I tried to enjoy it for what I did, when I did. And now I enjoy just watching it continue.